Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by Dr. Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy, and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Anthony Coxon. Well, the World Federation of Chiropractic Conference was a great success on the Gold Coast last month, with many great speakers presenting on a range of topics. One of the many I enjoyed was Dr. Jeb McAvaney's presentation, Modern Approaches to Non-Operative Scoliosis. I would expect that most chiropractors would have a host of patients with scoliosis walk into their practice every week, if not even every day. Some obviously quite mild curvatures and probably managed in a similar way to non-scoliotic patients. Other patients might have more advanced scoliotic curves and need special consideration. How do we best approach these patients and what non-operative techniques and tools are available to assist them? Well, here to help me answer these questions today is the man himself, Dr. Jeb McAvaney. For those of you that don't know Jeb, he's a chiropractor with a special expertise in clinical management of scoliosis and kyphosis. He holds both a Master's of Chiropractic and a Master's of Pain Medicine and has completed the World Master's of Scoliosis Management via ISICO, of which he is now a faculty member. Jeb has published research in the field of scoliosis, cervical spine and uh, pain and uh, biomechanics, and in vivo biomechanics for surgical implanting testing. His research has appeared in the European Spinal Journal, BMC Musculoskeletal Disorders, the Journal of Medical Case Reports, Clinical Biomechanics, and the Journal of Manipulative and Physiological Therapeutics. Over the past decade, he's dedicated himself to studying the numerous scoliosis rehabilitation and bracing techniques from around the world, which has led him to developing scoli balance a scoliosis-specific rehabilitation technique, and scoli brace, which is a 3D overcorrective brace that uses chiropractic principles of mirror image correction to achieve the best outcome for scoliosis patients. Hi, Jeb. Welcome to the ACA podcast. Hi, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. So perhaps first we should um, talk about uh, defining scoliosis. How much of a of a change in the in the cob angle, do we do we need to see before we call uh, a curvature a scoliosis? Yeah, that's a really um, great and interesting question. I mean, traditionally, the um, uh, the definition is a lateral curvature greater than ten degrees um, with accompanied vertebral rotation, and that essentially comes from you know the orthopedic textbooks talking about um, scoliosis in children. And while that's correct, when we think about it from an adolescent or juvenile or even an infantile point of view, it's overly simplistic. And it doesn't really give us an understanding of the three-dimensional nature of adolescent idiopathic scoliosis. One of the things that we know is that as the spine grows, when it grows with the scoliosis, the vertebrae themselves grow in an asymmetrical manner. And then that has a knock-on effect to the rib cage and causes that rib rotation or rib humping. We don't say humping in front of patients because we don't really want to catastrophize it. But but it really is a, a function of the deformity that's happening within the vertebra itself. And so the way that that's captured in that definition is the rotation. 
because, you know, if we see rotation, it's not that the vertebra itself is rotated in space so much as it's actually starting to deform in that transverse plane. And then that has a, a greater effect. So it has a greater effect on the posture. We start to see those asymmetrical shoulders or changes in the waist angles. We start to see a head translation, many other types of postural distortions that develop as a result of that deformity. And that's how we think about it in adolescence. In adults, however, it's probably been the bigger mind shift that an adult scoliosis is not just a curvature of you know 10 degrees with rotation. When we look at the adult spine, there's a sequelae of events that really occur leading up to a new onset degenerative scoliosis. We see a loss, well, and this hasn't happened in every case, but these are the typical patterns. We see a loss of the lumbar lordosis. We generally see an anterior shift of the sagittal balance. We often see significant degenerative changes with a, a lysthesis that's a lateral or rotatory lysthesis. And we see on top of that, the development of the curve. So in adults, when we read the orthopedic literature, it isn't just referred to or only referred to as adult scoliosis. It's also referred to as adult spinal deformity because we can have some of these things occurring before we actually see the scoliotic curve develop. And this is the area where the research is really focused at the moment. You know, we have an aging population. We know that the prevalence of adult scoliosis, degenerative scoliosis over the age of 60 is about 36% of the general population. And we know that burden of disease, musculoskeletal disorders, particularly back pain, you know, it's a, it's a huge thing for our society to deal with. And chiropractors are ideally placed to be managing these curves and, you know, co-managing also with people like myself who, you know, have a, a special interest in scoliosis and helping the chiropractor get the best outcome for their patients. So obviously, I guess the, the number one uh, way that a chiropractor or a health practitioner would pick up a scoliosis is uh, through sort of extending postural type x-rays. Uh, you talk in your presentation about EOS imaging. Can you explain what that is and how that might be suitable or not suitable for uh, monitoring and assessing scoliosis? Yeah, so EOS is kind of the buzzword in imaging at the moment. There is um, perhaps some evidence that, you know, uh, high levels of exposure to radiation can have a detrimental effect for our patients. So we're worried that, you know, um, repeated x-rays, um, particularly if the patient ends up having surgery because there's lots of intraoperative x-rays and things like that, have some associated health risks. So there's been a big push, you know, to find ways of reducing radiation. And the EOS is potentially one of those. It uses a special type of x-ray tube, more like a CT skew tube. There's a very thin x-ray beam that's picked up at a lower rate. So they can turn the dosage down. And sometimes it can be up to 10 times less radiation. However, at that radiation dose, it's non-diagnostic. So if we're looking for any type of tumours, pathologies, red flag things that we might see on X-ray, it can be problematic, at least for the first X-ray, for it to be on an EOS. The other thing that we have to be aware of is that with the EOS, the geometry of the X-ray is a little bit different. 
We don't have a diverging X-ray beam, which has a certain effect on what you see on the two-dimensional X-ray. With the EOS, because there's no diverging beam, sometimes it's problematic in trying to compare a traditional X-ray to the EOS because what you're actually seeing on the end plates of the vertebra is different. It's a different projection on the X-ray. Mm. Um, but in an ideal world, you know, I think the strength of the EOS is that it does capture the sagittal profile and the coronal profile simultaneously. And particularly in adults, that's helpful because we might have a very small scoliosis, um, but they lose that lumbar lordosis, they have anterior ribcage translation or anterior sagittal balance. And we want to capture that on a full spine, not on a not on a sectional level. That's what all the orthopedic research shows. And it shows that if that can be changed, we get good outcomes. But perhaps the, the big problem which is where we want to use the EOS the most, is in young children. The EOS can take four to eight seconds to scan, depending on the radiation setting, depending if you're going from head to, to foot. And if we're wanting to use that on five, six, seven-year-old children, I mean, you would know yourself, how yeah. how can you get a six-year-old child to stand still for six or seven seconds? It's it's problematic in terms of the, um, the artifacts that we sometimes see. So... Some good things and some bad things. The talk is really just about trying to educate the chiropractor. So if they use this technology, they know the pros and cons. And so EOS imaging, you mentioned that it's um, like a tube. Is it? Can this be taken with a patient standing? I'm assuming. It can only be done with a yeah. patient standing. So yeah. there's essentially it's essentially like having two X-ray tubes at 90 degrees to each other, mm. and they scan from top to bottom in like a simultaneous scan. Yeah. Now, um, it's interesting, obviously, when people think about idiopathic scoliosis, they typically think of, think about a, a teenage female uh, being the, the common um, uh, sex that shows idiopathic scoliosis, and that's the age that it tends to present. You mentioned before about sort of catastrophizing things. Imagine when we're having conversations with people about scoliosis for the first time, a lot of those sorts of issues, um, psychosocial type issues might be coming in because that's the age where girls in particular and, and guys, but girls in particular are very conscious of the way that they look. And um, they're probably pretty concerned about uh, that if they're developing a scoliosis, but might also be concerned about uh, wearing braces and so forth. How do you deal with um, these people or, or what sort of special things do you do to help, help them along in terms of their psychosocial well-being? So a few different things. Number one, we try and capture that from the beginning um, with some questionnaires. So we use a questionnaire called the SRS-22, and that has different um, domains, and it's on a score of zero to five, um, with five being nearly perfect, zero being terrible. And some of those questions capture a score about their mental health. It captures a score about their satisfaction um, and their pain and their function. And from that, we get a little bit of a snapshot. And that just helps us understand that in a somewhat more objective way than just asking them how they feel. And then it does also give us a way to track that during treatment. The other thing is certainly trying a lot of reassurance. You know, the fact that scoliosis is generally not a life-threatening disease. I mean, the only time that we know it has true cardiopulmonary compromise is untreated curves in very young children. So we want to make sure that they understand that it's, you know, it's not life-threatening. Um, but we don't want to downplay it completely because we want them to try and choose the best possible treatment, whether that's 
scoliosis specific exercise like scully balance or scully bracing or even in in unfortunate cases where they need surgery so really it's about explaining to them that you have this condition you know if we intervene with it now um we're likely to get the best result and so whatever it is that we choose we still we we sort of stay that path of treatment and try our best to get the best outcome, um, knowing that there are a small percentage of cases that may worsen, and informing the patient of that also at the outset so that the expectation is set correctly. And I think that's one of the the biggest things is taking away the fear by educating the patient and setting realistic expectations. Yep. That all makes sense. Um, now, obviously, bracing is an important part of management for some um, people with scoliosis. Tell us a little bit about the, about the braces that you use. Bracing is an interesting topic because most people have an idea of usually one of two things, like a soft sort of wrap around low back frame brace or one of the sort of hard plastic tubes that wraps around the body. And traditionally, those are the braces that have been used. But like all technology, bracing technology has come along a long way. Um, what used to happen is the patient used to be anesthetized and then put into a plaster cast. Mm. And then from that developed the thermoplastics like the Boston brace, where you didn't have to do that anymore. You would just take an off-the-shelf brace, fit it to the patient, cut holes in it, add pads to it. Problem is that that approach um, is really trying to treat um, scoliosis like a fracture, just immobilize it, rather than put the spine into a truly corrected position and try and grow the spine in that position. So with 3D scanning in particular, that's allowed us to then capture that information using a laser 3D scan of the body, put that information into a computer-aided design system, a CAD system, and then manipulate where we want the body and where we want the posture in correction on the computer itself. So we don't have to move plaster or do things like that. And it has allowed us to be a lot more biomechanically correct, a lot more overcorrected with the bracing, and to do interesting things with the braces where we can leave holes and we can leave spaces for movement. So that although we're trying to put the spine in the straightest possible position by moving the body into that mirror image, we still allow areas for movement so the muscles continue to work in the brace. So there's been that whole movement towards increasing movement in the brace and being overcorrective and capturing the data digitally. And so that's our type of brace we use called a scully brace. There are obviously many different braces out there. And the brace designs vary on whether you're treating a thoracic curve, a lumbar curve. They, they, they're vastly different between adults and children. And how we approach bracing with adults and children is different as well. For example, most adults would only wear a brace four to six hours a day. It's about trying to counteract that postural collapse associated with gravity when you have a degenerative spine, yes. as opposed to we want the kids to wear it a lot longer so that the dose-response relationship is high and we're growing that spine as much as we can. So it really just depends on you know what's presented and, and what the, the goal of the outcome is. Typically, and I know obviously there's huge variation here, but typically how long do children with idiopathic scoliosis wear the braces for in terms of, you know, is it something they wear it for 12 months, for six years, and, and do they sleep with the braces or is this only when they're up and about and moving? That's a great question. Um, 
if we look at the most common presentation for children, it is in adolescence. So they're a little bit older. And there's a limited window of opportunity to intervene because there's only so much time you have to try and grow out the spine into a straighter position. So on our average for adolescents, it's 26 months. And during that time, they typically need two braces to accommodate for any changes if you were to get correction in the spine and any growth. Obviously, the younger the patient, the longer the period of growth and the more they would need to wear the brace over time. Um, and then in adults, it's different. They've got a degenerative condition, and we think about it like scaffolding. If you're trying to scaffold the spine on the inside, that's surgery, and you need it on an ongoing basis. Well, the same if you're wearing a brace. In terms of the hours of wear for kids, we think about it in that dose-response relationship, that if they're growing 24 hours a day and they wear the brace for four hours a day and then they're growing for 20 and that scoliosis is worsening, what's going to win you know, the, the scoliosis is going to win. If they wore the brace for 22 hours a day and they, you know, were being corrected 22 hours a day and were only out of it for two, the brace is going to win. However, there has to be balance. You know, having kids wear braces 24 hours a day, psychologically, there's just no way 90% of them can cope with that. And plus, we want them to get out and be active and do sports and different things. So what we tell them is it's 23 hours a day you get one hour mental health break, but then you get up to an extra three hours a day for sport and exercise and that type of thing. So we set the expectation as 20. In some of the studies that we've done, and we've got quite a few that we've published this year and some others coming out, when we, we actually put a little compliance monitor in their brace, on average, the compliance is around 16, 17 hours. So by setting that expectation at 20 and getting 16, 17 hours, we still get very good results. But if we were to set the expectation at, you know, let's wear it for 12 hours for a growing kid, they're probably going to wear it seven or eight hours. Yes. So, yeah, it's important how you have that conversation with them. And that's normally something worn over th through their teenage years or how long typically for? So we want the spine to be in a corrected position as it grows. And although the, the whole um, skeleton might not mature until the sort of 20s, what we generally find is that rapid period growth of the spine is typically happening in girls between the ages of 10 to sort of 13, 14, and boys a little bit later, sort of 12 to 16. We look at their bone age and we look at the rissa staging on their pelvis, now more so, we actually look at, there's a humeral head scoring. We actually look at the humerus. That's a little bit more sensitive to the growth rate of the spine. And typically, um, for girls in particular, the rapid growth spurt of their spine has stopped about two years post-monarchy. So we look at all of those features to help us determine, you know, um, when we stop. But it is generally for adolescents 24 to 26 months of treatment um, with a weaning out period where they don't wear the brace anymore. Now, now it's not all just about braces, obviously. Um, a holistic approach needs to be taken to these patients and there's some um, hands-on chiropractic care, I'm assuming, with your uh, that you apply to your patients. And, and you've developed something called Scully Balance. T tell us what that is exactly. So just like we're trying to move the posture and the spine into a corrected position um, with the brace, we want the patient to do that actively um, and cognitively. So we teach them how to physically move their body and put it into a corrected position. 
so that they understand what that corrected position feels like. And then give them exercises that challenge their ability to hold that so that over a period of time, it becomes second nature and they can then hold that position even if they're out of a brace in activities of daily living. Mm. Particularly important, you know, as we were in the treatment, we're actually about to have a paper published um, in one of the Q1 medical journals looking at muscle endurance with patients that um, were in the brace doing exercise or just did exercise. We found that if we added these specific exercises to bracing, not only did we stabilize their muscles, but we actually got an increase in their muscle trunk endurance. So we do believe for sure that adding active treatment is important. One of the interesting things for us is because we don't see the patients as frequently, let's say if you've got a low back pain patient, you might see them two or three times a week for a period of time. That's not required for us to manage their scoliosis. And so our approach is actually to co-manage the chiropractic care with their local chiropractor. And we find that working as a team like that has lots of other benefits too, because you know, if they're seeing the chiropractor more frequently and they're having any challenges with the brace or the exercise and we're co-managing that well, we get feedback from the chiropractor. Um, Sometimes they need a little bit more chiropractic care at the beginning of their brace and rehab treatment. And, you know, where our clinics are located, we're located centrally in capital cities. We might have a patient coming from three or four hours away and it's just not practical for them to have chiropractic care with us so the way that we deal with the chiropractic side of it is actually form relationships with local chiropractors to be able to deliver the chiropractic care and so the chiropractors take care of that side and we specifically take care of the scoliosis management side of things right and so i imagine a large percentage of people who see you then are referred by chiropractors so we're in the vicinity of 40% of our referrals come from health professionals and around 30% of those are from chiropractors. Yeah. So um, we do that and we actually do a lot in the education space, as you would know from you know the, the lecture at WFC, but we, we're constantly doing things. We have online courses that we do. We go around and we, we teach an Essentials of Scoliosis Management course, which is certified for, I think, about 16 CPD hours um, in Australia. And we also offer a free review service for chiropractors where you can upload the x-rays, obviously with the patient's permission, um, just via the website, there's an upload x-ray or review section. And then you put in some clinical information. Um, if you've got posture photos, put that in. And we'll give you an opinion as to you know what to do. Last thing we want is someone driving six or seven hours away to come and see us that we can't help. You know, yeah. so if it's something that the chiropractor can manage, then we'll we'll give some ideas on management. If it's something that we can't manage that maybe is surgical, you know, we'll, we'll say, look, you should probably skip us and go straight to the surgeon. Mm-hmm. So whatever it is that the patient needs, we'll we be able to give some basic information through that review service. So just in terms of what you mentioned before about the the orthopedic uh, view of greater than uh, 10% with uh, evidence of rotation also in the spine, and that's the definition of scoliosis, uh, obviously that has some limitations. But if for, for chiropractors out there thinking, oh, look, do I need to refer my patient on to Scolicare or someone like that um, to, to have their scoliosis further assessed, what's that point where where that becomes the right thing to do? Particularly with children, if the curve is getting around 20 degrees, we start to get to a tipping point, a threshold, 
where the curve itself takes on a life of its own because of the bi biomechanical pressure on the bones that we call it the Hooter Volkman law of bone growth. So we start to get biomechanical remodeling of the bone, which causes more asymmetry, causes more deformity. And so if you've got a 20 degree curve in a 10, 11 year old girl, it's highly likely that that will progress because of the biomechanics of it. And we know that below 25 degrees, there's no evidence for physical therapy, scoliosis-specific exercise, chiropractic osteopathy for any of those techniques, changing the rate of progression or the natural history of scoliosis um, with a curve less than 25 degrees. So for a growing spine, we recommend at least just sending it for a review if it's 20 degrees or more. Um, when the curves start to get bigger, there's no strong evidence beyond 60 degrees for thoracic curves or above 50 degrees for lumbar curves that even things like bracing can reduce it down to under threshold. And the threshold typically for thoracic curve is you want to try and get it under 40 or a lumbar curve, you want to try and get it under 30. Mm. Obviously, the bigger the curve is, the harder it is to try and reduce that. Now, there are special cases, you know, where we're sometimes co-managing it with a surgeon and the curve might be 70 degrees, but for whatever reason, the patient might have other health complaints or there might be a one-year wait list for surgery, and we will brace those. But we're very realistic about that, you know, telling the patient and working with a surgeon that essentially what we're doing is trying to stabilise this for a period of time. And if it's stable, then, you know, perhaps you still might have to have surgery because you're already at that level. Yeah. Thankfully, you know, with more education in this space, you know, the fact that we're getting a lot of referrals from chiropractors, um, we have an online screening program that is one of the papers we have published in JMPT. The awareness is growing and we are starting to see some of these curves come in earlier, which is great because um, we get better outcomes. The patients are happy with the treatment because it's a little easier, more comfortable, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, so in that space, things are improving, which is good. So, Jeb, if chiropractors out there want to uh, discuss a patient with you or understand about more about what Scholicare have to offer, whether that's uh, care to, to, to their patients or indeed um, postgraduate education, uh, where should they go? Have you got a website that, uh, that you can read off there? So it's just scollycare, S-C-O-L-I-C-A-R-E.com. And it will take you to, if you're from Australia, it'll just take you straight to the Australian side. If you're from overseas, it'll take you to the one appropriate in your in your region. And there are two, there are two portals to entry. One is for patients, one is for health professionals. And in that health professionals, not only does it have information about us, but it has access to some scoliosis resources. It has access to the online screening program called Scully Screen, and it links out to that. And then it has access to our free review service as well, where you can, you know, ask a question, upload some x-rays, that type of thing, and someone within the Scholicare team will get back to you and, and give you some information. And then there's also information about our courses, the Scully Balance courses, the, uh, the Scoliosis Management um, courses, all of those things are, are there on the website. Fantastic research and uh, resource, I should say, and certainly I'm sure, Jeb, there'll be many chiropractors out there who'll be very interested to uh, to check out your website and understand more. Jeb, thanks so much for your uh, time on the ACA podcast today. Thank you so much, Anthony. I really enjoyed that. Yes, and so did I. It's been great having you on. Well, that's it for me. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence, and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast. <laughs>